Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all today. Welcome to church and welcome to week two of Starting Lines. So in this series, we're talking about next steps that we can take in our faith journey. Ways that we can be strengthened in our relationships with Jesus. Ways that we can grow and be transformed by him and ways that we can serve God by serving those around us. Now, last week, Pastor John laid the foundation for the series by talking about or reviewing what we call the four chairs of discipleship. If you weren't here last week or you're not familiar with this concept, I'd highly recommend you go back and watch last week's sermon. But in short, it's this idea that our spiritual growth and our walks with Christ can be viewed in four main stages. Now, what we've perceived and kind of added on to this concept is the idea that between each of the chairs, there is a major change that needs to take place in our hearts and minds. So first, there's the chair of seeker. And so this is where Jesus calls us to come and see, where we get to know him, where we get to experience his love, and where we get to hear the good news of the kingdom of heaven and of salvation in him. And our response to this good news and to Jesus himself is to say, I love my king. We turn from sin, we put our faith and trust in Jesus, and we commit to following him for the rest of our days. And that takes us to the second second chair, which is called believer. We're walking with Christ, getting to know him better, and becoming more and more like him. And as that happens, we begin to see the ways that he's already working in and through the people around us. And so not only do we love our king, but now we also say, I love my church. And we're still a believer in Jesus, but now we're also a a worker, someone who's playing an active role in building God's kingdom on earth. Finally, as we continue to get a better understanding of the way that God works and he continues to equip us for the life he's called us to, not only do we love our king and not only do we love our church, but we also love our city. And of course, it doesn't just stop with Fredericton city limits. God sends us out to go and bear much and lasting fruit and to be disciple makers, that's the final chair, wherever we go to the ends of the earth. So today we're going to take a closer look at the step of I love my church, of investing in and building up our community of faith. Now, as usual, I want to start us off with a question, and today it's this. Have you ever had an unlikely friendship? Have have you ever gotten to know someone who maybe you didn't see eye to eye or get along with at first or you got off on the wrong foot with? But 
over time, you learned to understand and appreciate each other. Maybe you willingly came together to pursue a common goal, or maybe you were kind of forced to spend time with each other on a team or a project. I was recently catching up with a buddy of mine named Matt, who I met at the beginning of my second and his first year at university. Now, Matt and I were both passionate about student ministry, and especially among international students who came from places where they would have had fewer chances to hear the gospel. So the way that we met was that at the beginning of September, he and a group of international students were going to the Moncton Mall for the day. I happened to be in Moncton, and I ran into them there and started chatting with them. Now, I didn't realize at the time that Matt didn't really know who I was. He didn't know that I went to the same university and that I was also a part of the international students program. So as far as he was concerned, I was this random guy who just showed up and started acting like I knew his friends. So about a year later, when Matt and I were hanging out one time, he said to me, you know, Kenzie, that first time that we met at the mall, I kind of thought that you seemed like a huge jerk. And I was like, well, thanks, Matt, thank you. But um, somehow I managed to convince him otherwise, and we actually became best friends for the rest of our time at university. There seems to be something about unlikely friendships that really captures our imagination based on how often we see them show up in our stories. From Carl and Russell and Up to Woody and Buzz and Toy Story. From Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne to Peter Parker and Tony Stark. From the Fellowship of the Ring to the crew of the Millennium Falcon, we love to see people come together who would normally never interact or might even be at odds with one another and set aside their differences to pursue a common goal and learn to respect and even like each other along the way. Now, as fun as it is to watch these fictional friendships develop, there are also some real-life examples of unlikely friendships found in Scripture. One of the clearest examples of this is in the 12 disciples of Jesus. So after Jesus had spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness and began his earthly ministry, a variety of different people started responding to his message and following him. Some people started following Jesus because they'd heard from others that he healed people and performed miracles. Others began following him because they directly experienced a miracle right in front of them. And still others, Jesus simply called to leave whatever they were doing and follow him, and they immediately responded. In Mark chapter 3, we learn that Jesus specifically called a group of 12 disciples to follow him throughout his ministry. Starting in verse 13, we read that afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, 
and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So Jesus calls his followers from a variety of different walks of life and careers. And some of these people had known each other already before following him as friends or family members, while others had never met and likely wouldn't have met otherwise. Without even reading the rest of the gospel story, just within this list, we can already see the potential for conflict forming. The clearest example of this is that Jesus' 12 disciples included both Matthew and Simon. Matthew's job up until following Jesus had been to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire that was currently occupying Israel. Now this meant that his work directly funded the oppression of his people and lined the pockets of Caesar. As if that wasn't bad enough, tax collectors were known for often charging more than they were ordered to and pocketing the extra for themselves. Simon, meanwhile, was a zealot. Now, oftentimes, when we hear the word zealot today, we tend to think of someone filled with religious passion and fervor. That's not untrue in this case, but there's evidence that in first century Israel, the word zealot specifically refers to a group of revolutionaries. These were people who were known for killing not only Roman soldiers and officials, but also people who they saw as traitors to their nation. People like tax collectors. And even if the word zealot simply means that Simon was filled with passion, let's just say that if he had met Matthew alone in an alleyway before meeting Jesus and knew who Matthew was, things might not have gone so well between them. Now, the rest of Jesus' disciples weren't each other's mortal enemies, but many of them had characteristics that would have made them unlikely choices for a group like this. There were James and John, the Sons of Thunder, which many commentators believe is a nickname they earned by having bad tempers. There was Thomas, often nicknamed Doubting Thomas, because he refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he put his hands into the wounds of his Savior. There was Peter, 
who rebuked Jesus about his death and resurrection in view of the rest of the disciples and was rebuked in return. And of course, there was Judas Iscariot, the very one who would betray Jesus among his core 12 followers. At least two different times, the disciples argued about who among them would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When James and John asked if they could be, if they could sit at the right and left hands of Jesus' throne, the rest of the disciples became indignant at them. It seems that oftentimes the only thing that the disciples had in common and could agree on was that they were having a hard time understanding who this Jesus was. So why would Jesus do this? It's one thing for him to call out people who were outsiders from society in general. But why specifically pick a group of people who would often have trouble getting along even with each other? Surely it would be much easier to just pick people who thought the same, acted the same, all had good relationships with each other beforehand, and that would have created an easier path to them giving a unified message. Well, bringing to together a group of people with disagreeing worldviews and from vastly different backgrounds might not have been simple or easy, but Jesus seemed to think it was worth it. And God continues to seem to think it's worth it throughout the rest of the New Testament. There are some major benefits of Christ-centered community, and specifically community that is made up of, of all different sorts of people that the New Testament presents us. And the first that I want to talk about is that community allows for support. Community allows for support. Now, that might sound rather obvious at first, but let's get more into detail. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is teaching on the topic of spiritual gifts. And he teaches that all the many gifts that we see in the church come from one and the same spirit. And that they are meant to be used communally to help one another. Now, in order to illustrate this, he uses the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. Starting in verse 12, we read that the body, the human body, has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But all of us have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear says, I am not a part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, 
how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, as someone who's a bit of a biology nerd, when I read this passage, I can't help but reflect on how amazingly cohesive and complex our physical bodies are. How each cell and tissue and organ performs a unique role so that the whole body can do far more than any part could by itself. God has equipped each of us for various roles in his church so that we can support and strengthen one another. Now, in these verses, Paul gives us two reminders about the way that God gives spiritual gifts. First, there's no one type of gift or person that will cover all the needs of the church. And so we shouldn't think that because we haven't been gifted in a certain way means that we're any less a part of the body. On the other hand, we also shouldn't think of ourselves as being do-it-all Christians with no need for anyone else's help. Rather, we recognize our needs and weaknesses and we celebrate the ways that our fellow believers can support us in the midst of those and vice versa. When God brings together people from vastly different backgrounds to be his body, he creates a whole that is far greater than the sum of its parts. But it doesn't stop there. Not only does community allow us to support one another, but community allows for maturity. 1 Corinthians 12 isn't the only place where Paul compared to the, the church to Christ bo Christ's body. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says this. Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children, we won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. 
As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Just as our physical bodies are designed to develop and strengthen, so God has placed us in the body to build up the body so that it can unite, multiply, and show his nature by speaking the truth in love. Just as each organ system in our bodies needs to develop in order for us to mature, so the the church grows in its mission to show God's love to the world as we all mature together. Now, we could keep on drawing comparisons between our bodies and Christ's body, but there is one important difference that we should point out as well. In our bodies, as we grow up, our brains go through a more complex development process than probably any other organ. In Christ's body, on the other hand, our head is Christ himself. In other words, the mind that directs and guides and activates our every move that gives us meaning and purpose is already fully formed and perfectly mature. As such, our maturity in Christ is directly tied to how attentive we are to him and to his, his direction, how immediately obedient we are to Christ as the head. When we are disconnected from Christ, it becomes easy for us to be swept away in schemes that sound like good ideas to begin with, but that ultimately work to hinder our effectiveness. On the other hand, when we are attentive to God's direction, we are built up by him in unity, in maturity, and in our capacity to love and serve each other and the world for God's glory. And that takes us to one final reason of why God brings together all different sorts of people to make up his church, and one final aspect of the beauty of Christ-centered community. After walking with his disciples for three years, after guiding them, teaching them, correcting them, and continuing to love them, even as they struggled to understand him and to be united with one another, Jesus had one final supper with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested. Now, there are many profound teachings that he gave during this final meal, but the one we're going to focus on has to do with the importance and power of our love for one another. Jesus said to his disciples, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
Or in another translation, that last verse reads, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Out of all the ways that Jesus could have said that we we would be marked out as his disciples, he said that we would be set apart from the world by our love for one another. There is something about the way that God calls and empowers us to love each other as the church. A strength to that love, a depth to that love, a barrier-breaking and unconditional nature to that love that simply isn't found anywhere else and that the world desperately needs. And when we are growing together in unity, we stand out apart from the world for the glory of God by that love. In other words, community shows whose we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. It is by our love for each other as the church that the world knows exactly what kind of king we serve and by which we, we are empowered to go and love our city. Now, you might be thinking, okay, all of this is good in theory, but how are we actually going to apply this? How are we, as Crosspoint, going to build up our community of faith? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So there are two opportunities that our church is providing that I want to tell you about. First, as Brad mentioned earlier, right after our service today, we are having our Connect brunch out in the fellowship hall. So for all of you here in person, and if you're joining us online and you're in the area, we'd love for you to stick around, have some snacks, and you know, maybe try to talk to someone who you normally wouldn't spend that much time with. This is a simple and yet great opportunity that we love getting to do together. Second of all, we're very excited to announce an upcoming opportunity called Guess Who's Coming for Dinner. This is an event that's designed to deepen existing friendships and form new ones. Now, obviously this doesn't mean that we think that we're all either tax collectors or zealots, or that we'd normally be each other's enemies. No, but it can be difficult to break out of our existing friend bubbles. And so the way that the event works is that right now we have both a digital sign-up and paper sign-up sheets out in the lobby. On those, you can indicate whether you would like to be a host and or an attendee. And it'll include other things such as food preferences and dietary restrictions and how many adults and children are in your household. We'll collect those responses and create groups of six to eight people out of them and then send you more details closer to the event date, including addresses and what kind of food to bring. 
Speaking of which, the actual dinners themselves will be held on January 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. Now, this event is meant for adults and teenagers, so we are providing childcare for kids in grade five and under here at the church from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. We're so looking forward to this event, to getting to share a meal with some of you, to inviting you to share meals with each other, and to hearing about everything that comes out of this time of fellowship. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. But as always, these are the opportunities that our church is providing, but of course, we highly encourage and love it when people come up with their own ideas about how to strengthen community together. And with that in mind, I'll leave you with one final question as we go into our last song. What is my next step toward investing in community? What is my starting line toward building up the church? You see, the kind of community that we're talking about that allows us to support each other, that allows us to mature together in following Christ, and that shows God's love to the world by our love for one another. This kind of fellowship doesn't happen on its own. This doesn't happen by us doing what's most convenient or most comfortable, or by waiting for opportunities to come to us. This is a kind of fellowship that requires us being willing to be inconvenienced, that takes us stepping outside of our comfort zone, that takes us going to people who we wouldn't normally gravitate toward with different mindsets and skill sets than us so that we can learn from one another and be supported and strengthened together. And by the grace of God who guides us, who has made us his people, and by the power of the Holy Spirit who, who directs us, it is so, so worth it. <laughs>